0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Daniel James, and this is The Fight for a Voice, a special series from 7am. There was a time when conservatives could have supported The Voice, thrown their support behind a proposal brought forward by Indigenous Australians at the request of one of their own, Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Instead, opposition leader Peter Dutton, after months of equivocation, decided to oppose the voice with all the gusto we've come to expect from the Queensland Conservative veteran of Australian politics. So how did it come to this? What damage is their rhetoric doing to the public debate? And do they really want to do anything to close the gap? This is episode four, the Conservative case for no. No.
1: And how are you going generally? Oh, all right. Um, we, we're obviously looking forward to getting this referendum out of the way. It's, yeah. Um, we, yeah we, it's a battle we've got to fight, but it's one we never wanted. Right. That's, that, that's the way to put it.
0: For the most part of federal politics in the 21st century, Barnaby Joyce has been a central figure. First, as a firebrand senator for Queensland, before making the inevitable move to the House of Representatives in 2013 as the member for New England. Joyce has always involved himself in the national debate of the day. In 2023, he isn't the face of the No campaign, but his fingerprints can be found all over the Conservatives' response, not only to the Uluru statement from the heart, but over his side's approach to Indigenous affairs more broadly. Uh, Mr Joyce, I wanted to ask you, why do you think the Yes campaign has had so much trouble convincing Australians about the voice to Parliament?
1: Uh, I think they got a very noble cause, which was... Uh, Aboriginal recognition, Indigenous recognition—I'll say Aboriginal for this podcast because in my area they call themselves sure. Aboriginals—and um, uh, stapled a whole heap of other things to it, which, as people became aware of them, it, it confused the issue, and it also concerned people. And the Constitution is a conservative document; it's a boring document, and people want to leave it as boring. They don't—they don't want experimentation with the Constitution because they. To be quite frank, they don't trust politicians. There you go, simple as that.
0: The National Party has always prided itself on being the voice of regional and remote Australia. A party that represents the segments of society which can be often forgotten in the maelstrom of political debate. On paper, this should include Indigenous Australians, 65% of whom live in regional and remote areas, the most voiceless amongst the most forgotten. But it was the National Party, under leader David Littleproud, to first come out and state its opposition to constitutional reform and The Voice.
2: And as the men and women who represent regional, rural and remote Indigenous Australians, it was important that we got comfort with the fact that this would close the gap. And unfortunately, we've got to a position where we don't believe that this will genuinely close the gap.
0: So it was a decision made before the question being put to the Australian people was even constructed, let alone announced. The party's position was also taken months ahead of their coalition partner, the Liberals. The decision gave new prominence to one member of the LNP in particular, Jacinta Napinjipa price the Senator for the Northern Territory who had entered the Parliament barely seven months earlier with a primary vote of 3.19%, a number not unusually low for the Democratic Hall of Mirrors that is the Australian Senate.
3: Thank you. I'm very hum- humbled, uh, very grateful uh, that the leadership has entrusted me, that Peter has entrusted me to carry out this job on behalf of uh, Indigenous Australians.
0: Within another five months, she would be thrust into the position of Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians after Julian Lisa, a supporter of The Voice, quit the Shadow Ministry on principle. I
3: absolutely look forward um, to bringing about... Uh, better lives for the, our most marginalised Australians in this country.
0: Enabled by uh, her new position Canada of prominence, Canadian. with the support of News Corp yeah. and already a regular contributor to Sky News, Price helped set the tone for the debate over The Voice.
3: Uh, again, we, if, if, if we don't know how it'll function, then there is no way to determine how it's going to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. And this is, a, this is, I think, the nation's... Uh, one of the nation's most divisive referendums we've ever experienced in our in our country's history.
0: Seven AM has made over a dozen requests to speak to Price, Warren Mundine, and other members of the conservative NOVE leadership to participate in this podcast series to no avail. Close examination of their opposition isn't part of the campaign strategy. It doesn't have to be. With a largely apathetic electorate, one tired of having politicians in their lives after COVID, a population which, according to Reconciliation Australia, only 17% have interacted with Indigenous Australians in the past 12 months. The sight of mundane and price on screens all over the country, denouncing the voice is a powerful one. It cuts through.
3: Long term, I wouldn't like to entrench in our constitution the idea of uh, disadvantage, which I think is what the voice will do. It'll suggest that we will forever um, require special measures we, you
2: know, we as, uh, as taxpayers have been given money to the government to fix these problems, and they've been spending billions and billions of dollars uh, for years on this. Who's held accountable for it? If someone in my office... The newfound
0: pulpit in which no proponents like Mundine have found themselves in means every claim they make, based in fact or fiction, controlled the debate narrative for entire daily news cycles. Such was the case when Mundine at the National Press Club declared the Uluru Statement a declaration of war on mainstream Australia.
2: What we describe as a symbolic declaration of war against modern Australia. The canvas is a glossy marketing brochure for the misappropriation of culture, a misrepresentation of history and for a radical and divisive vision of Australia.
0: At an earlier National Press Club address... Price, despite decades of evidence, numerous Royal Commissions and lived experience of Indigenous people, both now and gone, made the assertion that there were no ongoing negative impacts from colonisation.
2: Do you believe the history of colonisation continues to have an impact on some Indigenous Australians?
3: Uh, No. Very, I'll be honest with you, no, I don't think so. A positive impact, absolutely. I mean, now we've got running water, we've got readily available food. I mean, everything that my grandfather...
0: The no campaign's ability to cut through doesn't mean it hasn't been, at times, a campaign lacking coordination. This was highlighted by Mundine's appearance on Insiders, in which he said a no vote would lead to negotiations of a treaty commencing almost immediately.
2: We don't need another body of bureaucracy. We need to recognise those traditional owners. So we're more likely to get treaties if people vote no. Yeah, because then we have to do the hard on the 15th of...
0: uh, It was a statement made without any authority, the consensus of any movement, and it undermined the Conservative line that a mere voice to Parliament was all too much, let alone a treaty. Other thought bombs were launched by both Dutton and Little Proud the morning after the launch of the You're the Voice ad campaign, in which both leaders proposed another referendum on recognition alone, if this one was to fail
2: of Australians. So you'd hold another referendum? I believe very strongly, yes, I believe very strongly that uh, it is the right thing to do, uh, but enshrining a voice in the Constitution
0: is divisive... The idea of a second referendum was an absurd one, which his Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Senator Price, has refused to publicly support. It took about a fortnight for Dutton to turn his back on his own idea, but the strategy had worked, despite the disarray in the campaign itself... Instead of talking about the You're the Voice" ad, people were talking about a second referendum. It's a reminder that in a campaign built on fear, relentless negativity and willful ignorance, you can get away with being disorganised, especially if disorientation is part of your strategy. Barnaby Joyce, when he called from his home in the seat of New England told us that he believed the proposal for a voice to Parliament was doomed from the outset, something that he said was down to people not trusting politicians. You said that there's uh, basically a distrust uh, within the community of, of politicians. Yep. Wouldn't, wouldn't the voice perhaps be an alternative to, to camper politicians making decisions about Indigenous people?
1: Well, people would, you know, even uh, two days ago, I was in a what was formerly a mission, an Aboriginal community in my electorate, and the distrust goes even to there. People say, "Well, this is this is a voice from a section of our community, not a voice from every part of our community." And and they these ladies said the same thing. Said no one consulted us. No one's talked to us about it. We don't know what it's about. And so there's a sense in, amongst some, not all, that it's not so much a representation of all Aboriginal people, but a representation of a section of Aboriginal people with their views. And um, people are always hesitant when you talk about people being selected or the capacity for them to be selected because you can select your friends. And uh, that's not the way democracy should work. If you're going to have power in the parliament, and this would definitely have substantial power, then there must be that check and balance, which is a mandate of, of people by reason of an election. It's how democracies work.
0: Wouldn't it only have the power that the parliament itself gave it though? Isn't that an opportunity for your party and, and people like yourself to actually constitute the voice itself and, and limit its power if if the need be?
1: The whole reason, not, it's not a pointless sort of flight of fancy that you put something into the constitution. Once it goes into the constitution, it has inherently constitutional powers. And the judiciability of those constitutional powers will not be determined by the parliament, they'll be determined by the court. In this case, the High Court. In the actual document itself, it talks, it doesn't talk about advice. Uh, it talks about representation. These are two entirely different words and have, have immense more power. And it's in its briefest form, you would say, well, if you went to the High Court, would you want legal advice or legal representation? Of course, you want legal representation. And the issue is not about whether it has a veto power. I agree, it doesn't. There is no capacity of veto. But there is most certainly a capacity of dispute over process, especially surrounding consultation, where um it could be said, well, you haven't consulted properly. You've erred in a section. You've put too much emphasis in another section. You've completely missed another section. Therefore, your consultation is um is uh, is more than improper. It's it's unsubstantial. It 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 does doesn't meet the bar of consultation. And therefore it's not that your decision is vetoed, it's just ruled null and void as if it never happened.
0: So, according to Joyce, the voice, formulated by the Parliament itself, would have immense power, but no power to veto any decision or piece of legislation made by the Government of the day. This assessment made his and Malcolm Turnbull's remarks in 2017 even more incredulous. Do
2: you not believe a, what would in, in effect be a third chamber of Parliament available only to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is consistent with our Uh, constitutional
3: values. The
2: allegation that The
0: Voice would be a third chamber of parliament is something both Turnbull and Joyce have walked away from and apologised for. The former, after much thought, now a supporter of The Voice. But Joyce still says it's constitutionally risky, that it will lead to delays and dysfunctions something that constitutional and public law teachers and experts don't agree is the case. Have you paid any heed to the 71 constitutional public law teachers from around Australia that have signed a letter saying that the the voice to Parliament itself is not constitutionally risky?
1: Well, I can't take that to the bank, can I? I mean, that's just a view. It's a view now. And I I had constitutional lawyers, in fact, I had the Solicitor-General saying on my um, uh, section 41 or the constitutional test of whether I was eligible to be in Parliament because apparently my father had been for a period of time a New Zealand citizen and at that time I was born. And I was told I'd not worry in the world. Well, it went to the High Court and I lost seven zip. So this is my own personal experience of how people's opinions and how later reality are two different things. Any person who can tell you exactly what the High Court is going to decide is either a, a profit or they're guessing, they're giving their best guess. And of course, there are other legal opinions that said it would be uh, a, a, a lawyer's feast as to how it works. And you know, what's the point of a high court if you can already interpret exactly what it's going to do? It's, if it's in the Constitution, it has the capacity to be interpreted by the high court, discussed by the high court, and it would inevitably be tested by the high court. And if you think it wasn't, well, here's my question I pose to you. Why do you need it in the constitution, just put it in legislation?
0: As covered in part one of this series, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, with its regional structures and elected representation, was a legislative body and was vulnerable to the whim of any government. With a population as disadvantaged as Australia's Indigenous population, and one that is such a small cohort within the broader community, and one which has no electoral clout, a legislative voice is too risky. It gets back to the argument, what is reconciliation and what is practical and what is merely symbolic?
1: I think the issue in regards reconciliation is an ongoing process and I fully support it. Uh, I think that the next time it, that it comes about, you must have a constitutional convention. There's no good to being all enthusiastic at the start because your your first poll says you know, this is very popular because it, ultimately a debate will always surround in a very magnified form what you're going to do to the constitution of Australia, which does not just affect Aboriginal people, it affects all people. It's a constitution for all of Australia. So you must have a constitutional convention and you must be honest enough to get the divergent views present at that table. And you must be adroit enough and uh, basically um, smart enough to realise that you've got to bend towards some of those divergent views to be able to have hope of carrying a majority of people in a majority of states. And if you think, oh, well, it's my way or the highway, well, um, that'll fail, and it will fail every time.
0: So if the no vote is successful on October 15, what part of Indigenous disadvantage do you think needs addressing first?
1: I, I think that the first thing is making sure that uh, people have, in, in the very remote areas that people are safe and secure from the moment they're born to the day they have their own independence. The best chance you have in life is before you're seven years old. And if you've got, you know, give me a child who seven and he's mine for life, so St. Ignatius said. And I think that's so true that, that you've got to make sure that those first few years a balanced and um and and overwhelmingly issues of, of health have to be dealt with in all in all its all in all its manifestations, issues uh in, in some areas, not all areas, overwhelmingly uh, Aboriginal people are a lot more conservative in their actions than, I would say, Caucasians, to be quite frank. Um, and But uh, where there are problems and areas there are problems and communities where there are problems, no matter what people's colour, those areas and those need to be dealt with uh, and to give the kids the best opportunity. Then, as I've already said, it's a secondary education. It's making sure that we, we don't try and give, and it sounds sort of counterintuitive, do what I've said before. We don't try and give Sydney solutions to Brarana problems because they they won't work. You've got to give Brarana solutions to Brarana problems, and you've got to actually work on the best thing to do is work on the premise of what is working already.
0: I find myself agreeing with much of what Joyce says, while recognising at the same time every point he makes can, in every instance, be addressed by a voice to Parliament and the representational structures proposed by the carmel Langton Report that sketched out an idea of how the voice would work. A report that was presented to the Morrison Cabinet and then agreed upon as a way forward on a proposed legislative voice. It also highlights the level of political opportunism within the No Campaign. Because if you strip away all of the rhetoric, all of the fear, the basic principles that both sides espouse aren't as far apart as many would have you believe. But for Joyce, the status quo seems good enough.
1: But they're already doing it. You, you know, you, you, people aren't imbeciles. They're already doing it. You know, you, you don't, you don't, I, I could, you know, I could go up to areas and, you know, I've got, you know, good mates up in the Gulf, they got my phone number and they rang me up and they tell me exactly what they want. Build, you know, if you, you get building contracts to, uh, in, in, you know, Aboriginal firms, that helps Aboriginal people the outback way from Bully through to Laverton. I think 75% of that workforce is Aboriginal. So that works (laughs) and and that's good for our nation as well. And, but we didn't need the voice to do that. That was just logic. And that was basically good actual political representation. Talk to your community and, you know, give them back what they ask for. You don't need an interlocutor. You can do it if you're just competent in your own politics.
0: Coming up after the break, how did the Conservatives come to oppose the voice? An idea that was meant to win them over.
1: For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship
2: and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill.
1: I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am
2: listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer.
1: Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic song of the earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tonietti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au
0: While Barnaby Joyce was one of the first Conservatives agitating against The Voice, one of the Conservatives to support it right from the beginning was Julian Lisa. All right, well, let's, let's kick off. Um, please uh, <laughs> state your name and title for, uh, for the record.
4: My name's Julian Lisa, and I'm the federal member for Barara.
0: Lisa describes himself as a constitutional nerd, so tinkering with the document isn't something he takes lightly.
4: Well, I was a a year five school student, and I had this great teacher who saw I had an interest in current affairs, and thought it would be a smart idea to get me to do a project on Australia's prime ministers. And for each prime minister, I wrote a short biography, and I drew a picture, and uh, when I got to Sir Robert Menzies, who founded my party, uh, I gave myself a bit of a haircut and stuck down uh, a bit of my hair on his bushy eyebrows. What I was interested as I was doing this project um, was I kept hearing about this thing called the Constitution. And so for my 10th birthday, I said to my parents, look, I don't want a bike and I don't want a cricket bat or the latest game. I'd like a copy of the Australian Constitution. <laughs> as I said in my maiden speech to the House, uh, I think the Latin term for this is Nerdus Maximus.
0: But it's more than just a pet interest. Julian Lisa has been a solicitor, a judge's associate, and a constitutional law advisor to an attorney general. He was even one of 10 members on the No Committee for the Republic referendum in 1998, which is when he first started paying attention to the idea of constitutional recognition for First Nations people.
4: Uh, there was obviously, you know, very strong debate about a republic there, both from constitutional monarchists like myself and Republicans of all different varieties about what form that the Republic might take and whether we should have one in the first place. But there was growing discussions across the aisle on that issue about whether there should be some form of recognition of Indigenous people as well in the context of having a a referendum on on a republic. And I participated in a subcommittee which involved all of the Indigenous delegates. Um, There were some Republicans and some monarchists as well on whether there should be some form of constitutional recognition of Indigenous people. And I even moved a motion at that convention that regardless of whether uh, we had a um, referendum on the Republic or not, that we should have a second question on recognition of Indigenous people. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it it, it did seem to be the the missing bit of our constitution. I, I like to say that... The genius of the framers of the constitution was that they put together the six constituent parts of the, of the federation, which were the six colonies, which became the six states. But there was a group of people that they overlooked, and it's a group of people that they, you know, we, we view very differently now to the way they did in the 1890s, and that's our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. And so this was all about completing our constitution.
0: Who knows where we would be if the second question had been supported in the 99 referendum? Whether the Symbolic Act would have been enough to espouse any real action to address Indigenous disadvantage, or whether it would have been an impetus to drive change, what it does show is that Conservatives have been thinking about First Nations constitutional reform for close to a quarter of a century, and some Conservatives, like Lisa, haven't stopped thinking about it. So, almost 10 years ago now, you sat down and worked on a proposal for The Voice, um, tell me a little bit about, about that time. Who did you sit down with and, and what were you aiming to achieve?
4: Noel Pearson, who I, regarded as a, I regard as a remarkable Indigenous leader, a remarkable Australian, was trying to work out why it is that people vote no in referenda mm-hmm. and what could you do to find some people who have a track record of campaigning against constitutional change to try and um, help bring them on board in a process uh, of constitutional recognition. So what would you need to do to bring on board constitutional conservatives like myself? Uh, And he talked to myself, he talked to people like Greg Craven and Anne Toomey and my friend Damien Freeman about what's the way forward here? How, How do you view the Constitution? So we said to Noel, look, you need to think of something that works with the grain of the Constitution. Think about a new institution. And he went away and he started thinking about, well... What's the, what's the challenge here? The challenge is that the voices of Indigenous Australians aren't, aren't listened to, they're not heard. We've got this gap, we've got policy challenges in Australia where we've got particular expertise that we can bring to bear. How do we get the elephant and the mouse problem? How do we get uh, the elephant, which is the rest of the population, to listen to such a small percentage of our population? So he came back with the idea of a, of an advisory body, which was called the voice, and he and Ann Toomey and Greg and Damien and I were engaged in the drafting of a provision that's not that dissimilar from what uh, what we're voting on back in 2014. So before the Uluru dialogues, before the referendum council report, before I was a parliamentarian, uh, I'd already put my feet on the sticky paper and made a commitment in relation to constitutional recognition through a voice. And then um, when Indigenous people were consulted deeply, as they were in the referendum dialogue processes that led to Uluru, and they were presented with a whole range of options, including a voice, including symbolic recognition, including racial non-discrimination clause, and asked whatever else they might be interested in, they rejected a lot of the things that had gone before. They rejected the purely symbolic. They rejected the racial non-discrimination clause, and they said, no, we want an advisory body, we want a voice. And, And that was a very significant moment.
0: And it did seem to resonate with the broader community for, um, for a long time, up till the start of this year. And then uh, Peter Dutton, your leader, came out against The Voice. How much more difficult did that make the potential success of The Voice, but also, I guess, persuading conservatives to get behind The Voice as well? How much of a game changer was that in terms of where we are at today.
4: Well, I I just want to take you back a little bit before the decision of our party room in relation to opposing the voice. And uh, Peter came to this with an open mind. He genuinely did. I I worked very closely with him uh, as his shadow minister, both the shadow attorney general and shadow minister for Indigenous Australians. And the fact that he chose me to do this role indicated, given my long history uh, on this issue, that, that he had an open mind. We kept asking for detail, we kept asking questions and just felt those questions were not being answered and Peter put forward his list of questions at the beginning of uh, beginning of the year and they were not answered and I, I'm sad that we've got to where we've got to. I don't want to point the finger at any particular uh, particular person here because it's, it's not one person's decision. There are a range of decisions along where we've got to but... We ultimately ended up in a position where uh, we didn't have bipartisan support on the issue. And I think uh, that I, I think that is sad, but that, that is where we are.
0: After that decision was made, Julian Leeser moved to the backbench so he could continue advocating for The Voice.
4: Unlike almost any other party in the Parliament, the Liberal Party gives backbenchers the freedom to champion the ideas they believe in. I want to exercise that freedom because I intend to campaign for a yes vote. How heavy did that decision weigh on you? Oh, very heavily. I mean, this isn't a decision that you take lightly. I was conscious of uh, not wanting to let Peter down and not wanting to let my colleagues down and very conscious of the opportunity that Peter had given me. But ultimately, I had such a long um, and unique history on this um, that I, I felt I wouldn't be true to myself if I was out there making arguments against something that I fundamentally believe was good for the country. And as I said at the time, I, I wanted to to be able to say to my kids that, uh, you know, in politics, it's really important to stand for something, especially when it's uh, difficult, especially when it comes at a cost. Um, And I think that's that's an important message in any line of work, but particularly in a line of work where you're supposed to be there to represent people and you're engaged in a conversation based on values.
0: Throughout the campaign, Lisa has tactfully trod the fine line of dispelling many of the No Campaign's spurious claims while never attacking anyone from his own side, a firm believer that reasoned argument speaks for itself, no matter how
2: outlandish the claims from others might be. The great progress of the 20th century's civil rights movements was the push to eradicate difference, to judge each other on the content of our character not the colour of our skin. The voice, as proposed by the Prime Minister, promotes difference. And it's sadly a symptom of the madness of identity politics which has infected the 21st century. The voice will re-racialise our nation at a time when we need to unite the country.
4: This Prime Minister... I think the fundamental objection of some of my colleagues in relation to this, and it's the fundamental argument of the no case, mm-hmm. is that, the, that this creates a division on race that doesn't, presently exist and that's an argument that I I just disagree with. Uh, Let me explain. In 1901 um, the founding fathers of the constitution put in, in the constitution a thing called the race's power. It allowed the federal parliament the power to make laws about the people of any race for whom it's deemed necessary to make special laws. That power continues to exist to this day In 1967, um, we added that those people about whom we could make special laws included Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 90% of Australians voted in favour of doing that. Now, since Federation we have only made laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the basis of their race. They're the only people that that's ever happened to. We don't make laws about Greek Australians or Italian Australians or Hindu Australians or Jewish Australians or Sikh Australians or Christian Australians, but we do make laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the fruit of those laws has been this gap that means that despite this being the best country to live in on the planet, there is this gap that just does not close in terms of the outcomes between the general population and Aboriginal people.
0: One of the key lines of attack from the No campaign has gone to the idea of risk, which has led to the slogan, if you don't know, vote no. For many, it helps create a murky atmosphere around the voice and enabled Peter Dutton to exploit any uncertainty.
2: A voice will be a new institution. A voice would be the most radical and consequential change to the way our democracy operates in our nation's history.
0: But for Lisa, the arch-constitutional conservative, this couldn't be further from the truth. Is the idea of the voice consistent with our constitutional heritage?
4: It absolutely is. I mean, what does the Constitution do? Our Constitution creates institutions, the courts, the Senate, the House, etc. This is about creating a body that runs with the grain of the Constitution in that it doesn't seek to replace any of those institutions and it doesn't seek to shift the balance of power What it does seek to do is to provide advice and thereby uh, allow us to make better policies and better laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians.
0: You've put a tremendous amount uh, on the line for this and into this, both intellectually, professionally and, and dare I say it, emotionally. Uh, What would the feeling be like on October 15th if we were to get to a point where this referendum wasn't successful? What would be your reaction? And what would it say about uh, Australia?
4: Well, I'm working hard every single day to ensure that we have a, a successful result on the 14th of, of October. But ultimately this is a decision for Australians and um, you know it is our job to try and persuade Australians that this is worth voting for, that it will make a difference and that it completes our constitution and that this is a change which is both necessary and safe. Nothing changes if we vote no. We don't have a new mechanism to help us deal with closing the gap, with with focusing on, um, you know, Aboriginal life expectancy, ad- Aboriginal incarceration, Aboriginal um, rates of death, uh, Aboriginal um, uh, health and education outcomes. There's nothing new. Uh, in fact, it is it is the status quo. And In most referenda, you hear, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But here the system is so sorely broken uh, that I think if we vote no, it's just a continuation. It's an endorsement of the broken system.
0: Tomorrow, on the Fight for a Voice, we'll look at what the vote will mean and the two different Australias that we could wake up in on Sunday. I'm Daniel James. I'll see you tomorrow.